You are now listening to Real Matters of the Heart, the podcast, where we say life is all about chances and you can determine how many you take, but not how many you get. I am your host, Joy. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode number 34, Let Me Suffer. Now, before we jump into the episode, I want to make a very important distinction, and that is between suffering and sulking. Suffering is to feel pain or distress, whereas sulking is to persistently be gloomy or brooding. And I think it's an important distinction to make because when we don't allow ourselves to experience suffering, we cannot move through it and ultimately beyond it so that we don't end up sulking. This whole thing was inspired by an article that I read earlier today. So on Facebook, people are constantly sharing tons and tons of things, and I don't always have a time to read them, so I'll often save these articles. I rarely ever get back to them, but today I had a chance to read a few that I saved, and I came across this one that seemed interesting. It was a woman who wrote this article it was a couple of weeks ago during the height of the Me Too campaign as women were sharing their stories of sexual harassment and assault. And this particular woman did this piece where she essentially was saying that she was reluctant to and ultimately decided not to share her story because some of the stories that she was reading were so intense and so just horrific that she felt like her personal experience almost wasn't worthy of being shared as though it just wasn't bad enough to to even be in the mix. Right. And so she sort of shares a little bit of details about what happened to her, but it's mostly about how she felt like whatever her experience was, it wasn't worthy of being talked about in the context of some of the other stories that she was reading on her timeline. I thought that was really interesting, mostly because I thought, well, you didn't want to write a post about it, but you did instead a whole article about it. And I just thought that's kind of passive aggressive. But then I dug a little bit deeper and I realized I don't think it's passive aggressive. I think actually what it reminded me of is this statement that we always say misery loves company. And something that I've always responded with when people say that is it's not necessarily just that misery loves company. It's actually that misery needs company. People in general need compassion and connection, but especially in times when they're feeling miserable and they're feeling isolated in that misery and they're feeling alone in that misery. And so we'll say misery loves company as though people who are in a miserable season are trying to drag us down. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that people who are in struggling seasons or tough seasons I don't think they're trying to drag us down. I think that they're just wanting to not be alone in those spaces, not because they have malicious intent towards us, but because it's natural for people to not want to suffer by their lonesome. So anyway, it made me think of that. And what I sort of concluded was that she was really struggling with her experiences. And though she didn't share the details, I think that she didn't feel free to talk about what was going on because of this really like a make-believe hierarchy of suffering and struggling that we have Um, where we create this situation where people can't have their experiences without us having to interject 
with some fact about someone in the world having it worse. And it's like, okay, I live in LA, right? And I'll, you know, say something like, oh, it's cold out here. And somebody will say, oh, you're so spoiled. It's not cold. You know, it's 30 degrees out here. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Wherever you are in the world where it's 30 degrees, that doesn't mean that because it happens to be colder somewhere else that I can't still be cold here in LA, right? And so it's the situation where people have to interject this fact that it could be worse or it is worse somewhere else. And therefore you don't have the right to your experience and to express that experience openly without someone having to drop this comparative bomb that says, oh, your experience is not important or is negated or is minimized because as it relates to someone else's experience, you know, it's not as bad, right? So we've created sort of this make-believe hierarchy of suffering that doesn't allow people the room to move through and ultimately move beyond the suffering that they're in, in whatever moment, in whatever capacity it may be in. And so when I was reading this article and I was reading her words about basically feeling like there was no room for her to tell her story because it didn't feel big enough or bad enough to share, I thought, what does that mean for her healing? What does that mean for her being able to move beyond that experience if she doesn't feel like she has the space to air it out? When we bottle things up like that, especially when it comes to something like sexual abuse, there's a lot of shame attached to it. And when you isolate yourself and that shame begins to magnify and multiply and you don't have any room to let it out because it's trapped in this secret secret place or it's trapped in this sort of idea that is not important enough to be shared and because no one cares or whatever it is that we begin to do with these stories that we don't feel like we have the freedom to share, that just gets worse. I remember years ago, I guess it must have been about 10 years ago by now, when I first started considering going to therapy. And really the main narrative around what took me so long to actually do it was that I felt like I haven't lived through anything else that other people haven't lived through. And so if I need therapy, then everybody needs therapy. And I remember that was sort of the reason why I never looked into it. For about five years, I had that conversation with myself. You know, I had the typical stuff, breakups, you know, just stuff of life, stuff of life. Right. And I really thought that therapy was reserved for people who had, quote unquote, serious problems. And whatever I was defining serious problems to be, I don't know if that meant, you know, to the point I'm making earlier about like people who have been sexually assaulted or whatever I was defining as bigger, more serious issues. I thought to myself that what I was dealing with and the conflict that I was experiencing was not important enough to seek support. And there are so many people who sit with their issues because they too feel like what they're dealing with is not important enough. And then we perpetuate that in our culture by promoting this fake hierarchy of suffering. Like your situation isn't bad enough for you to want to talk about it, for you to bring it to your friends, for you to be seeking support. It's not bad enough. It's not you need to figure it out, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or work harder or 
you know, stop crying or whatever we say that sort of minimizes what people are feeling. And we don't allow people the room to experience their suffering. Um, And so in thinking about that more, I thought, I wonder if I've ever shown up in ways that has minimized people's suffering because a large part of the work that I do requires me to allow people the room to feel what they feel. And so I wondered, like, in knowing how easy it can be to minimize or negate someone's experience, I just started thinking of, like, what ways does that typically happen? And then how can I highlight those ways such that we can become more aware of how we show up when someone is trusting us with their story? Because when someone finally gets to a place where they're willing to share what's happening with them, that is a sacred time. And if you happen to be the person with whom they share that with, you have to regard that as a very sacred experience, a very sacred moment where someone is trusting you, they're being vulnerable with you, and they are opening up to you, you have to honor them. And there are some ways that we can honor them. And so I just want to share some of the thoughts or ideas that I had around how we can hold space for people when they are in a place of suffering and they decide that they want to share that or they need to share that with someone. And so the first thing I came up with is empathy over sympathy. And the way that I've kind of differentiated the two, empathy is an appreciation for what somebody is experiencing. Like you allow them to express what's happening with them. And then you can say without judgment, I, I get it. Not necessarily I get it because I've been there. But I get it because I understand that that is your value or your meaning or your interpretation of this experience. And I'm allowing you to have that. I can appreciate your place where you are, whereas sympathy is more like an affiliation with. And that's more like sort of trying to be with them in the feeling. And what happens oftentimes when you sympathize is that the feelings can become overwhelming and then you feel whatever you're feeling as a result of trying to meet them where they are. And it gets so overwhelming for you that then they now feel responsible for you. They feel sorry or sad for sharing because they feel like they've dragged your mood down or your emotions to this dark place where they are. And they might've been coming to you for support. And now they're feeling like they have to support you because in in your attempt to meet them in those spaces, you've now dropped down to this place where, you know, you're suffering with them, right? And so it's a thin line between empathy and sympathy where you have an appreciation for somebody's feeling versus an affiliation with someone's feelings. And so very important to, again, when someone is trusting you with their story to be able to empathize with them and allow them the space to have what they're feeling without getting in it with them and therefore also sort of being dragged down. And it's sort of a situation where imagine someone's drowning and you go out to try to rescue them and because they're so desperate and they're drowning, when they grab a hold of you, now you're both sort of sinking because they're pulling you down because they're trying to get up and catch the air. 
and they end up pushing you down and now you're both struggling. Right. And so no one can help anyone because everyone involved is now struggling and suffering. And so learning how to approach the situation such that you can be a support without putting yourself in danger. And that is the difference between empathy and sympathy. When you sympathize, you may be putting yourself in a place where then you can no longer be of support to them, which is what they need from you in that moment. The second thing that I thought about is empathy over pity. And so again, there's a thin line where you can begin to empathize with somebody and go, I get that that's how you feel. And I am, you know, honoring how you feel without going, oh, I feel so sorry for you, you know, and sort of buying into this idea that because they are suffering, they are somehow now in this helpless, hopeless place and framing the conversation with them in that context. And again, it's not something that we typically mean to do. We're coming from a good place and we want to be supportive, but the words, the language that we use can really convey a very, very important message. And when somebody is fragile and they're sharing with you and they're suffering, the last thing you want to do is make them feel more hopeless and helpless with, you know, so that I'm so sorry. I feel so sorry for you. I feel so bad for you. Narrative. Again, allow them to have their experiences and honor their feelings without painting the picture as though, you know, oh, like, woe is you, right? We've heard woe is me, but like, woe is you. But the flip side of that, and the third thing I was considering is we don't want to be the woe is you. Oh my God, I feel so bad, right? We don't want to do that. We don't want to pity the person. But we also want to be careful that encouraging a person can turn to disparaging a person, right? And so the flip side of I feel so bad for you is, oh, you're so strong, you'll be fine. Which in that instance, you know, again, the intention is to encourage somebody, oh, you're so strong, you'll get through this. But the thing is, in the moment, I'm not really feeling strong. And so again, by asserting that you're not really allowing me to have my feelings, you're not allowing me to sit with the fact that I am experiencing pain or distress in this moment. And what you're doing is sort of when you say, oh, you're so strong, you'll be fine, is minimizing what they feel in that moment. And what you're also doing is sort of equating struggle with weakness, because you're saying if you're acknowledging your struggle in this moment or your suffering in this moment, um, you're exhibiting weakness. So don't do that. You'll be fine. You'll be you'll, you're strong. You'll be fine. And it's sort of like. Again, not allowing them room to feel what they feel and you're equating their suffering in the moment and their experience of that suffering and their expression of that suffering with some sort of weakness. And because you're not weak, you're not allowed to acknowledge this struggle or this suffering. You're strong. You'll be fine. And that's a problem because strength and struggle are not mutually exclusive. They're just not. One can be strong and still have struggles, still have suffering, still experience or feel pain and distress. And I will say that oftentimes our tendency to do that, to tell the person, oh, you're strong, you'll be fine, comes from our need for them to be strong and to be fine. 
We need them to be whoever it is we've paint this, painted this picture of them to be. The person who can always handle it, who always has it together, who always overcomes, who always perseveres, who's always re- resilient. And even if that is the case and that has been the case, you don't get to rob them of their season of mourning if that's what they need to do for whatever has happened. Don't project your need for them to be strong in such a way that doesn't allow them to manifest that strength as seeking support. Because being able, being courageous enough, brave enough to be vulnerable and say, I need support is in fact a manifestation of strength. So because you need a person to be strong in a particular way, doesn't give you permission to strip them of other manifestations or displays of that strength. So be careful that your encouraging doesn't turn disparaging. A fourth scenario that I kind of thought about, which occurs frequently when we're dealing with people bringing us our stories of suffering and struggle, is that we begin to look for a resolution And in doing that, we also seek the reason. So we begin to say, and I'm, I know I am super guilty of this. Um, So we begin to say things like, well, why? There must be a reason why this is happening. What, you know, like there's some sort of formulaic approach to how life unfolds, which I know intellectually is not true, but emotionally when I'm in the middle of some stuff or when somebody I love is in the middle of some stuff and I just want them to be out of it or I want myself to be out of it, I begin to start to look for, okay, what happened? What led to this? How do we reverse the effects and that sort of thing? And that's dangerous too, because it can easily slip into a feeling of blame. Like this is what you're experiencing. There must be a reason why, what did you do? to deserve this or to be living through this or to cause or create this. And while I do believe that life doesn't happen to us, it happens through us. And we are on every level responsible in some way for the things that we're experiencing. Responsibility is not the same as fault. Just because you participated in something doesn't necessarily mean you caused it. So it's very, very, very thin line when you're looking for a resolution And then you begin to fall into reason and start looking for cause effect sort of things. Every experience in life is not linear. So we have to be very careful not to begin to look for reasons on the way to looking for a resolution. And I say that also to highlight there's a difference between the lesson and the lead up. So when you're looking for the reason, you're looking for the thing that led up to the issue. What happened before this? What, where, you know, where did I go wrong? What did I do that I shouldn't have done? Or what didn't I do that I should have done? Or whatever that is. And I'm not saying that that's not ever appropriate. There may come a time when that's appropriate, where you need to do some self-assessment, self-inventory, hold yourself accountable, and look at the ways in which you participated in creating your experiences. That is appropriate but not immediately. If someone is coming to you with their story and their suffering and their struggles, in that moment may not be the appropriate time to do 
the self-inventory, the self-examination and the accountability piece. Sometimes you have to just be with what you're feeling and allow the other piece to come at some point down the line. So lead up is important, but it's different from lesson because sometimes you won't ever know lead up. You won't ever know what caused. You won't ever know how you created that, but you can always learn the lesson. And the last piece is the comparison. And this sort of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where we do things like, oh, you know, it's not that cold in LA. It's however many degrees over here in Boston or in New York or Alaska or wherever, or you're not hungry. There are children who are starving and they haven't eaten in days or, you know, whatever extra out things we do. Don't be the friend who compares. Don't be the friend that goes, oh, it's not that bad, or it could be worse, or even worse, don't rob or hijack the moment with your own personal account. Like when I was going through such and such, I was experiencing it like and giving the details about how much worse your situation was in the way that, again, in some way negates or minimizes what that person is going through. And in that moment, what they're trusting you with. The last thing you want to do to someone who is trusting you in their vulnerable moments with their story is minimize their experience by comparing it to yours or some other scenario that says you're experiencing this, but there is something or someone that is having a worse experience. And therefore, what you're saying to me doesn't matter, even though that may not be your intention That's often how it comes off. An impact is always going to be more powerful than intention. Always. So even if your intention is not to minimize their experience, when you say things like it could be worse, it's not that bad. Or when I was going through this, it was this, this and this. And therefore, you know, you got it made. That is. Your intention may not be to minimize their experience, but that's the impact of that. And that's the worst thing you can do when somebody is trusting you with their vulnerable moments, their suffering and their struggles and their stories. And so I just wanted to kind of put those things out there because, again, this is a large part of the work that I do when I'm supporting people who come to me with very, very intimate stories about their relationships, about their careers, about their health, about their finances, about, you know, deep secrets. People often say to me, I don't know why I'm telling you this, or I've never told anyone this before. And I know it's because I have really intentionally practiced showing up and holding space for people in a way that doesn't make them feel judged. That doesn't make them feel less than that doesn't make them feel anything except honored for who and where they are in their lives. So I want to pass those things along. I hope that they are helpful. And when you find your friends and family and people you know um, in a a season of suffering or struggling, that you can be a container for them, hold space for them, and allow them some relief from whatever it is that they're going through in the moment. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Real Matters of the Heart, the podcast. This is episode number... So thank you so much for listening. This has been Real Matters of the Heart, the podcast, episode 30. 30-
So thank you so much for listening. This has been Real Matters of the Heart, the podcast where we say life is all about chances and you can determine how many you take, but not how many you get. Remember, this is a space for us to come and be while we're still becoming. And so I want to hear from you. Please send me your questions, comments, and feedback to my email. Hello at joyhearts.com. You may also subscribe to the podcast, which lives online on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play Music. Search hashtag R-M-O-H. To find out more about what I'm up to in the world, you can visit me on my website at joykmadison.com. And last but not least, I want to hear from you and stay connected. So please do find me on social media. You can follow me at joyhearts, J-O-I-H-E-A-R-T-S. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.